Welcome to episode 31 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are continuing our series on genres, and we're going to be talking about mysteries today. Yay! Yeah! Do you read a lot of mysteries, J.J.? No, not exactly. Um, I do enjoy a good mystery, um, and they're sort of more of my vacation reads, like when I'm going somewhere, and uh, it's often what I call like the airport book, mm-hmm. you know, where you're like at the airport and you're browsing for stuff to read. Um, it's not typically a genre I gravitate toward, but I do enjoy a good mystery, but I don't read as much of it as I do like science fiction fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same with me. Mysteries were something that I never picked up on my own. And then I started working for a publisher that had a mystery imprint. And uh, part of my job there was helping the editor read through submissions and cultivating the things that, you know, I would give it like a second set of eyes if she was on the fence about something. So I started reading a lot more mysteries as a result of that. And um, that was really interesting. And then I've, I've cultivated sort of a taste for it. I know what I like and what I'm looking for, uh, when I go to read mysteries now. So, yeah. So what, what is a mystery? What are kind of the hallmarks of the mystery genre? Usually there is a central, a a central mystery, but a central question, um, that the reader is trying to figure out alongside the protagonist. Usually it's a whodunit, you know, somebody's yeah. been murdered, something's been stolen, somebody's like missing. Like a crime of some kind mm-hmm. or, um, yeah, I think, I mean, yes, that's why they're called mysteries. You're trying to solve them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think most times I can't off the top of my head, think of an exception wherein the reader is not also trying to solve the mystery alongside the characters. Usually I, I think that it's very rare that the reader would know more than the protagonist, because that's a convention that sometimes happens where the reader will have more information than the main character in different types of fiction. And so we know things that the protagonist does not, but I don't think that happens often in mysteries. I think usually the protagonist and the reader know the same amount of information. And if the reader does know more than the protagonist, then the writer hasn't done a very good job. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think. I mean, we could be wrong. If you're thinking of an example of a classic mystery that does, you know, kind of flip that on its head, then do let us know. But uh, in general, I think that that's pretty much one of the main rules of writing mysteries. Yeah, yeah. Um, We also mentioned this previously in the Introduction to Genre episode, uh, that the the mystery genre spans a lot of categories, a lot of subcategories. They can range from the relatively tame, Mm -hmm. the so-called cozies, um, to the really, really gritty, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, And those tend to be classified more as thrillers. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, there is, I think, is there a distinction between a thriller and a regular mystery? Um, yes, there is. So there's thrillers and slashers, which are a lot more violent. Usually the crimes are very violent. You know, it's um, murder or a serial murderer or sometimes serial rape. Um, you know, it's really graphic and gruesome and horrific in that um, kind of story. Usually the language as well, there'll be a lot of swears. There might be sex on the page, um, you know, even consensual sex. Um, you know, they're just a lot grittier and darker in thrillers and slashers. And then you have kind of your standard, you have like your hard boiled mysteries, which is like the beaten down detective or cop who, you know, has been working the beat for ever and ever and is now, you know, focused on the whatever crime it is that he's focused on. And those hard-boiled is more centered on your protagonist than than perhaps the the villain or the murderer or the mystery itself. J.K. Rowling's adult books are, fall into this category. The ones that she writes as Robert Galbraith mm-hmm. um, definitely fall under the, the hard-boiled detective series. Mm-hmm. The series is called Cormoran Strike, and that's the name of the detective. Yeah. Um, and a lot I really of... like these. I really do. She, she's still, she's got the touch still, <laughs> J.K. Rowling. Well, she's really good at mysteries. Even in the Harry Potter series, she does great yes. mysteries within that series. You know, the mysteries there are really great. Yeah. So it doesn't I surprise think... me that her adult mystery series is popular and successful. Yeah, the I would say the first three Harry Potter books in particular are really wonderfully crafted middle grade mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, her adult books are just adult in content, obviously. She's not really prone to swearing as much, but they are obviously darker. They involve kind of gruesome murders. We don't see them on the page, but they're there. Like the the nature of the murders kind of get more and more gruesome and also kind of more and more personal mm-hmm. as the series had gone on. Um, I would also say that another distinguishing thing about a thriller versus a just kind of a general mystery is I think the level of danger the protagonist is in. Yes. I would say that in a thriller, the level of danger that the protagonist is in is much higher. It, you know, they are often running for their lives or fighting for their lives in addition to trying to solve whatever crime it is. Yes. Yeah, they're more directly involved in um, in the central mystery itself. So yeah, there's there's thrillers and slashers. There's you know the hard boiled detective. There's cozies, which we did talk about, um, and cozies really run the gamut. Cozies are um, what you'd call soft mysteries. You know, if we've got hard boiled, cozies are soft. There's no swearing. There's little to no sex. The protagonist is not a professional. It's not a detective or a cop. It's, you know, a random civilian who happens to get... Yep, amateur sleuth. Random civilian that happens to get drawn into events. Um, A lot of times these are the little old lady mysteries. Yes. Um, (laughs) They're also... Cozies really lend themselves well to blending with other genres. So you can have historical cozies. You can have paranormal cozies. You can have cozies 
series with uh, Central Romance. Um, they're much lighter. They're humorous. They do really well with getting, like, really, really niche. Like, when I was working with this mystery imprint, we had a series of cozies, um, you know, about a yoga instructor and all this yoga stuff. We had a series of cozies. Um, pet cozies are really huge. They're really big. Like yeah. an amateur cats sleuth. Yep. Cats yep. and dogs. Like the, you know, the random, you know, girl is out walking her dog and happens upon a body. And then she and her dog have to, you know, save. Or there's a stolen priceless bird who, you know, is, you know, whatever. So pets are really big in cozies. Um, but in general, they are are much lighter. Um, the The protagonist is not usually in any real danger. Um, they are amateurs. They're often, you know, funny, humorous sort of a thing. And they tend to have series. You know, you can have an a endless cozy series, you know, following this one yeah. protagonist who just repeatedly stumbles across, across all these bodies. different crimes and then they have to keep solving them. Yeah. Um, I mean, the mysteries in general do lend themselves to series very well. There's mm-hmm. because the nature of the mystery is that even though the characters may be the same throughout the book, uh, once the mystery is solved by the end of the book, it's it's it. That's kind of it. You can then move on to the next one. So mm-hmm. mysteries lend it's it's like um, a Law and Order episode. Law and Order is a perfect example of this. You've got continuing characters through all the episodes. You know they do cast change ups here and there, but the crimes are pretty much solved by the end of the episode. If not, then it's like a two parter at most. Mm-hmm. Um, so and so it's much it's episodic in that way. You can kind of pick. Generally, you can pick up a mystery anywhere in the series and yeah. just read for the mystery and not necessarily for the character. Obviously, mm-hmm. in a mystery, you want good character development and everything, but um, that's kind of some the format, that's kind of what it lends itself very well to. And I think TV procedurals is probably a pretty good, pretty good comp um, mm-hmm. in a different form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, then, you know, within all those different genres or categories of mystery, you know, we we break things down even further. Um, a lot of times, you know, you could have the one hard-boiled detective, or a lot of times now there's partners, the two cops, that are going through, and the series will follow them and their relationship as partners, and... Rizzolia Isles, I think, mm-hmm. is a series about two lady... I think one's a cop, the other one's a detective, or something mm-hmm. like that. All of Sophie Hanna's books, she is a British writer, all of her books follow the same detective pair um, through different unrelated crimes. Uh, Sophie Hanna's mysteries are excellent. They're really probably some of my favorite that I've ever read. Little Face, in particular, is one of hers that is just stellar um and she is hmm, i'm trying to think of i guess you would call them medium and they they're not quite thrillers but they're they have a psychological aspect to them uh and they are just just genuinely haunting and you know it's not necessarily like a murder but there's a weird central question that is creepy and eerie. Katrina McPherson is another British writer who writes similar 
um, books. Gillian Flynn? Mm-hmm. She's definitely fallen under that category as well, that kind of... There's, there is kind of a central question in most of her books, obviously the most popular being Gone Girl, but she's written a bunch of others. Mm-hmm. Sharp Objects, Dark Places, uh, Tana French is another one. Mm-hmm. Tana French is actually, I believe, the pseudonym of a husband and wife pair. Um, yeah. Suspense. That's what they're called. I was like, I yes. know that. I know it has a name. I was like, it's was not. Like, I was like, it's not thriller. What is it? It's suspense. Suspense is the official mystery name for it. Yeah, yeah, and they're not quite. Li- and these sometimes don't extend themselves to series the same way mm-hmm. mysteries do. Um, each book may be more of a standalone in that regard, and there's a different set of characters in every book. Like, there's no continuity in, in Gillian Flynn's novels. I don't believe that there's continuity in uh, Tana French's novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Katrina um, McPherson, they're all standalones. Um, so, yeah, that, mysteries, thrillers, suspense. I'm trying to think if we're missing anything in that kind of general category. Um, obviously, these are different from each other, but I think the common element is that there is, as Kelly said, a central question that the reader is trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Often these are books that hinge on, quote, twists. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really hard thing to do well, to a good twist. It is really difficult to do well, because I think you need to keep this really intricate balance of making sure that your reader does not guess the twist too soon. So you have to keep it shrouded enough that the reader is not just going to immediately figure it out, which will take some of the joy and the tension out of reading. But at the same time, you want it to be the moment when the reader gets to that twist. You want it to make sense. You want the reader to think back on everything that they've read and hear all the places, all all the pieces click into place. If you get to that twist and you're sitting there going, what? Like if it just doesn't come from, right. If it just doesn't make any sense and it's just a twist for a twist's sake and there's no way that you ever could have known it, that is, that feels cheap to readers too. So it's this really delicate balance of making sure you've laid the groundwork, but that you haven't laid it too thickly. <laughs> it's like a really delicate. Yeah. It's, it, it's also, I don't know. I, I, the one thing that I remember, it's actually a TV show that I remember watching that I got to the end and the twist was revealed and I, because it was a TV show, I couldn't throw my TV across the room. <laughs> but I pretty much sat there going, no, no, no. Uh-uh. What was it? any sense. It's the British Broadchurch. Oh. They did an American version of it called Grace Point. Um, mm-hmm. But the British version is called Broadchurch. I think it's a mini series of six episodes. Um, and it was critically acclaimed in the UK. It also has David Tennant in it, mm-hmm. who I love. Um, and it, it is, it was very good. And it was, it brought church is a small town on the Southern coast of England. Um, kind of like a close knit community and there's like your local detective. And then, um, you have like David Tennant, who's like the outsider who comes in, mm-hmm. but basically they find the body of a boy on the beach 
And then as the story unfolds, you kind of go through these various people in the town and their lives, their backstories, how they intersect and what secrets they're keeping, whether or not they're tied to the murder. It's really good. And, and the show keeps you guessing. You're kind of like, maybe it's this character. Maybe it's that character. Maybe they all have plausible reasons to deny mm-hmm. it or whatever. Um, and then the actual reveal comes up and it's nobody that we've suspected. Oh. And it's and it's somebody that you would have every reason to believe would not be involved in it. And it really felt like when they showed the end and they showed how it all came to be, I was literally sitting there being like, Mm-mm. <laughs> nope, nope. No, that's terrible. I know, I hated it. But I was like, everything up to that point was so good until right. the reveal of the actual killer. I was like, <laughs> you just want to stop at that moment. <laughs> or you need, so mad. you need like the clue version. Like, that's what could have happened. But what about this? <laughs> just, and just retcon it and have a new ending. Oh, I love Clue. Clue is phenomenal. It's one of my favorite movies and I will never get sick of watching it. Yeah. Um, clue is great. <laughs> But yeah, that is so frustrating because I've had twists before where I've gotten to it and it wasn't at all what I expected, but it was so brilliant that it just made sense. Yeah, and and hindsight, it makes sense and that's fine. Like I'm fine with being blindsided by a twist if it makes sense Mm -hmm. over, you know, in the, over the course of the book. But in Broadchurch, it just, you're like, no, it doesn't make any sense at all, like Mm -hmm. at all. Why would this person do this? And I think they only did it to basically emotionally screw over the main character. And I think that's it. I think that's literally the only reason this person was chosen as being the killer. And I was like, that's a really cheap shot. Yeah, you can't. I would say, I mean, I'm sure that people who write mysteries all have their own unique writing processes. um, And that's fine obviously you write the way that works best for you but i imagine that it would be difficult to write a mystery without knowing the who did it before first. you start yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have you have to know because that's, and in the process of writing that you know can the details can shift and things and all of that but if you if you are writing a mystery without knowledge of the answer to that central question you can't satisfactorily embed those things within, you know, the text as you go along. I mean, I guess you can always go back and revise, but I feel that it's probably important to figure that out before you start writing. Yeah. (laughs) If you're writing a mystery. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would also say the whodunit itself is kind of a category of mystery. Um, Obviously, all of them are about solving the crime, but the point of the whodunit is almost a mind game riddle. Mm-hmm. Like, you are the one trying to put Figure the out. pieces yeah. together. Well, it's like the locked door mystery. Like, Clue is a locked door mm-hmm. mystery. We know that it is one of these people. It has to be one of them because there was no one else there. And so you just have to go through and eliminate them one by one until you find the person who did it. Um, there was this, these in particular are from when I was really little and they're not adult mysteries or thrillers, but Donald J. Sobel used to write one. He used to write the Encyclopedia Brown series, Uh um, which I don't even know if they're still in print. 
I think they know must what be. Encyclopedia Brown is. I I mean obviously I do because I grew up reading those. They must be. I'm gonna look it up now. Um, <laughs> what else did he write though? He wrote these series. I think they're like two minute mysteries, and they're basically like two or three pages where he gives you a mystery, um, and then you have to solve them. For example, like he'll just. I'm trying to think of one in particular, and and they all all the and and like. To the answer, you'd have to, like, flip the book over upside down to read what the answer to the mystery was. And they all hinged on, like, you would having to reason things out or know certain things, like, you know... Some of them were kind of things, like, you couldn't possibly expect a child to know, like... a. a like a platoon of soldiers crossing a bridge are marching in unison, but they wouldn't actually do that. They wouldn't march in unison, but like, why would a child know that kind of thing? But he did kind of these series of that's what it was. Like you are, you are the sleuth. You are the person trying to put the clues together and figuring out why so-and-so is lying and who's, you know, um, so there's a, and that was kind of the point of the encyclopedia Brown books too, because he was a child genius and they bring like kitty mysteries to him obviously like who's yeah. my cat or whatever and and encyclopedia brown would kind of gather all the clues together and then deduce who the person was you know like sherlock holmes is like a whodunit mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's um yes encyclopedia brown is still in print penguin did one as recently as 2013 a recover of it i think okay so, okay. yeah, it's not a new book, I don't think, but uh, a recover. No, these have been around forever. I think they're even mm-hmm. older than I am. They're yeah. from, like, the 60s, I feel. Mm-hmm. Like, they're really old. <laughs> mm-hmm. Another style of mystery that I feel like we see more in movies and TV, but you do see some of it sometimes in fiction, or at least in classic fiction, certainly, is noir. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's, you know, the detective with the, you know, the femme fatale who comes in to the office and needs your help and, you know, whatever. But I like noir in lots of ways. I like updated noir. The One of my favorite TV shows is Veronica Mars, which is noir in high school. Um, and it's, that's an excellent show if you like mysteries. And, uh, I do love that show. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there's lots of, there's lots of styles of mystery. That's one of the things too, is that it's a genre that's really, there's something for everyone, Mm -hmm. you know, to a certain extent, if, if science fiction or fantasy isn't your thing, then, you know, there's, there's a lot of range within science fiction and fantasy, but if you can't buy into that initial conceit, then, you know, there's just not much that that genre is going to be able to do for you. But for mystery, you can find comedic mysteries, you can find historical, you can find romantic, you can find suspenseful and, you know, thrillers and slashers and um, middle grades. And, you know, it just really runs the gamut. And I think that for the most part, there you can, I think you could find a mystery that for anybody, for anyone's tastes. Mm Mm-hmm. And they might not like all mysteries, but you could find something that they would enjoy. Mm-hmm. I would agree. There's a, a, also kind of, I'm thinking of another subset of mystery, thriller, suspense, that um, there is also, I think, legal thriller, 
which mm-hmm. John Grisham yep. made pretty pretty big. Uh, Jody Picoult, to some extent, I would say, writes legal thrillers. They're not thrillers, I guess. Well, there's a legal element in all of Jody Picoult's books. Yeah, legal dramas, maybe. Legal dramas, yeah. perhaps. Um, so there's kind of like that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. There's like the law aspect of it. There is, I mean, crime. So it's either a mystery that you're solving, like a central question, or in this case of suspense, just kind of unease, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then there's the solving crime aspect of it. Um, mm-hmm. And this is why mystery, thriller, suspense, etc., is so broad, and that's why you can find something for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you These don't technically fall under mysteries and thrillers, but you can kind of categorize them under thriller in general, like military thriller. Yep. Any time that there's some thing at stake, some question, something that needs to be solved, regardless of whether or not that's a crime or just a question or whatever, Mm -hmm. something that has to be solved is often categorized in this genre. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously sometimes they're categorized in general fiction. As we mentioned before in science fiction and fantasy, and more to my point about magical realism, which was if the point of the book is the setting, the fantastic elements, then it belongs in science fiction fantasy. If the, it's not the point of the book, if the, the genre elements, quote-unquote, are not the point of the book, they're often shelved in just regular fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like, it's a sliding scale. Genre is just like that mm-hmm. for every genre, you know? Yeah. Another thing, too, that I didn't really mention, but... Um, Thrillers can also kind of blur the lines between, we've talked a lot about our protagonists and, you know, whether they're amateur sleuths or they're, um, you know, a lot of times in thrillers, it's the victim, the person being stalked, the person being followed or attacked, um, or a detective or something like that. But you can also have thrillers told from the perspective of the criminal for lack of a better word. So the entire Mr. Ripley series by Patricia Highsmith Mm. is Mm -hmm. from the point of view of the talented Mr. Ripley. And uh, I've actually read, we own the box set. And so I've read all of those books. Yeah. Those are great. She's great. Fascinating. I love Patricia Highsmith. I think she's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Or famously that Agatha Christie novel where is it Murder on the Orient Express? Where it might be, yeah. It's the like the one book that's not narrated by our usual protagonist, and the uh-huh. narrator's the one that did it. Uh huh. Um, you can get away with that. It, it depends on the writer, mm-hmm. and it depends on the book, obviously. Um, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's always interesting because I mean, Tom Ripley is our protagonist in that. He has situations that he gets into and, you know, the central things are all about him. And sometimes he's trying to solve other people's murders while he's off murdering his own people. You know, like it's all, it's all, you know, muddled and the waters are very gray there. But sometimes we really just are what, like reading a book about him planning and committing, you know, various crimes, which often involve burying people in his wine cellar. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and you're just like, oh, okay, I'm going to go with it. It's a little bit like the Dexter books, mm-hmm. um, which they turned into a TV show. And those books diverged very sharply from the TV show, um, or rather the TV show diverged very sharply from the books. 
Um, but Dexter is a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a particular brand of serial killer where he only kills criminals who have gotten away with things. Um, mm-hmm. And but he is. He can't deny. It. You can't right. deny that he's you know a killer. That is what he is, and he very methodically plans his kills and what he's and. And it's kind of an interesting reverse because we know who's committed the crime already in these books. And it's the process of him almost working backward from it to mm. find the evidence that they've done it and then planning his kill. So it's right. kind of an interesting structure in that way. Um, but yeah, the the show and the books just after the first season just go whew, <laughs> totally different directions. <laughs> So what do you think it is about mysteries that appeal to readers? Why do people like mysteries? I think it, I don't know. It, it, it engages the intellectual part of my brain in more than the emotional side of, mm-hmm. you know, because I always said there's kind of two parts to reading for me. There's kind of the intellectual engagement and the emotional engagement. Most of the time I'm reading for emotional engagement. But every once in a while, I just kind of want to be intellectually engaged in just a different way. And when I'm trying to figure out something along with the protagonist, I enjoy that exercise. Um, like uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. Mm-hmm. and yep. um, <laughs> I remember where I was when I read the Da Vinci Code. Do you same. remember where you were? <laughs> it was such a big book. It was one of, you know, the first explosive books I remember hearing about everywhere. And I was, I don't, I think I was like 18, maybe. What year did that come out? It was at least before 2003, because yeah. I was a freshman in college when I read it and I read somebody's hardcover. I think it came out when I was in high school, but I read it when I was in college. Yeah, I think it was like the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college that I read it. But I remember exactly where I was and like what I was wearing while I read that book. What were you doing? Um, I, we had just moved. My family had left my childhood home and had moved into a different house and I was there and the boxes were all still packed and I was down in the basement and there was this brown shag carpet in the basement. It was finished with wood paneling on the walls and I was sitting on a couch in denim cutoff shorts that I'd cut myself and uh, a t-shirt that I had cut myself into a v-neck because I was very fashionable and it was summer and there were just all these boxes around me and I was drinking iced tea. I had this big thing of like probably crystal light, like powdered mixed iced tea and read uh, the Da Vinci Code. You mentioned the cut t-shirt because I'm pretty sure I was wearing pretty much the exact same thing. Yeah, that was, the, that was cool back then. <laughs> yeah, what we did is we took t-shirts and we like cut the necklines mm-hmm. and like cut strips and things into the shirts. If We're old, you guys. Um, <laughs> I was in my freshman college dorm and I borrowed the book from my one of the people down the hall, Dora. And I, I had the bottom bunk and I was in my bunk. I was wearing, mine was like a pale yellow t-shirt that I cut up. Uh, it was between classes because I had one class at eight o'clock in the morning and I had my art history class at two. So between like those two classes, I pretty much read the book in those couple of hours. Mm-hmm. And I had bought 
a large canister of salt and vinegar Pringles from the cafeteria downstairs <laughs> and ate the whole thing while reading this book in one sitting. And now I actually can't even look at the spine of the Da Vinci Code without like the taste of the... That's like your glands <laughs> yeah. activating. Yes, and that kind of just like that shriveled feeling in my mouth. <laughs> That's so funny. There's, there's a few books that I have really intense sensory memories like that for, you know, every single one of the Harry Potter books, I know exactly where I was mm-hmm. when I read those for the first time. Mm-hmm. And and a few other books in my life that, um, that I remember, you know, not just the book itself and my emotional reaction and how I felt, but like, I remember my physical being as I was reading it. And the Da Vinci Code is one of them. I don't know why the Da Vinci Code sticks out to me in that way. It's not even like I particularly enjoyed it. No, that. I didn't like it. <laughs> I could not put that book down. And that was kind of the first time I think I really read a page turner like that. Because like all of the Harry Potter books are page turners, but I went into each of those books knowing I was going to devour them in one sitting because that's just, you know, that was the kind of reader I was. And obviously it was a, you know, I was invested in that, but I had only just heard of the Da Vinci Code from other people. And I was like, ah, I'll, I'll read it. And it was like... It really was one of those books that I just had to keep turning the pages, even as though, even though there are multiple points in this book where I was like, well, that's just factually incorrect, but I just kept reading. <laughs> it didn't matter though. It didn't matter. It didn't I just matter. kept turning the pages. <laughs> um, I actually went and read a, some of, not all of him, his other books. I think I read Digital Fortress. I read... Angels and Demons, which is actually a much better book than The Da Vinci Code. Um, and it's they've all got the same characters for the most oh. part. Robert Langdon. They're mm. all connected by Robert Langdon. So it's kind of like a hardball detective thing. But he's sort of got... His shtick is kind of like secret societies and... Yeah. You know, that, that sort of thing. But Angels and Demons, I thought, was the best. I never read any of the others after that one. I read them all on planes, so mm, I tend good to plane read, books. Yeah, I tend to read a lot of mysteries or thrillers or suspense books on planes. Mm-hmm. Like I read Gone Girl on a plane. I read. Uh, Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> I read Gone Girl lying in bed next to my husband. So I don't know if that was the best way. No, to read that, that was one. not the best idea. I think <laughs> I just kept looking over him, like. Mm. Um, yeah, I was on on my way from New York to Colorado because I was going on vacation with my family and I had gotten a galley of it. So it wasn't actually out yet. So I had gotten a galley of Gone Girl and read it on the plane. It was, it was the same thing. It was, I read it so fast mm-hmm. that kind of almost didn't know what I was reading. I was just gulping it down so quickly. Yeah. I usually find those mysteries are not only the ones that I enjoy the most, certainly the ones that I enjoy the most, but also the more successful ones because when I read a mystery, if, if a mystery is working for me and I'm engaged in that central question and I need to know what happens or I have my, my suspicions about what happens and I need them confirmed, you know, you have to keep reading in order Mm -hmm. to get to that. And, and the tension is so great that I can't, there are some books that I can read a little bit before bed tonight and then put it down and then pick it up a day or two later and read a little bit more. And mysteries are not like that if they're good. I agree. I have read some mysteries that I personally did not enjoy and they've taken me a lot longer than I would 
expect. Actually, one of the most recent ones was Girl on a Train. Yeah, I didn't love that either. I read that probably over the course of like a week and a half, two weeks, which for me is a long time, especially for a mystery. Both Kelly and I read like at the speed of light. We do read very quickly, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And so it just wasn't, you know, and it would be kind of that thing where I'd be like, oh, I'm reading this book, but I don't necessarily need to know what happens. And that should be the driving thing in the mystery is that you need to know what happens. And I know lots of people who loved that book. So it, you know, probably just wasn't my personal thing. Um, But I find that with mysteries that if it's working for me, then I can't put it down. I, I would agree. If it's, there's two things. If I like the character enough, I will continue reading. Uh-huh. Or if I have a driving need to know, then I will keep reading. Like Gone Girl, The Da Vinci Code, those are books that I had to know w- what the answer was, essentially. For some other books, um, like the Cormoran Strikes books by J.K. Rowling, obviously I want to know the answer to the mystery, but I also just really like the characters in it, and I enjoy spending time with those characters. Um, and the same thing, these are... And these are a little bit of a genre cross. These are the... I don't actually know the name of the series. But it's a trilogy of books by Joe Walton. And the first one is called Farthing. The second book is Hey Penny. And the last book is... No, the... Ooh, Half a Crown. Um, and they're sort of set in an alternate England. <laughs> so... And they're really good. And, and the main character is this inspector... Um, and the first one is kind of like your typical closed, closed room mystery. There's a dead body in the house and it's a politically motivated mystery. So you're trying to figure out, you know, who, who done it. Um, and then the second book is set something like 10 years later and there's like a murder of an act actress and they're trying to figure that in the third book. And they're all linked politically to what's going on in a sort of alternate world war II England. They're really, really good. I don't know necessarily what I would categorize them as because they are alternate history, but also mysteries. So, right. <laughs> um, I have to look at. I don't know what the name of the series is, but they're they're very good. I, I really enjoy Joe jo Walton's stuff. She's mostly known as being a science fiction fantasy writer. Mm-hmm. Um, she also wrote this delightful book that I really love called Tooth and Claw. That's basically Jane Austen with dragons. Ooh, I love it. It's so great. It's so it's so adorable and and charming and delightful. Um, I'm trying to look at the. They're called the Small Change series by Joe Walton. Um, and there's a divergence in actual history. So they, um, it's a critical point in World War Two. They think they lost a battle, and therefore everything's been altered since then. Um, but I, I really love those. You know, they, they're really, really, really great. <laughs> nice. Is there anything about mysteries in general that we haven't covered yet? I don't, I don't think so. I see mysteries are more common. Well, maybe it's just that I read more adult mysteries than I do children's mysteries. I mean, there are children's mystery books. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really cute historical one called the Wells and Wong series. 
um, and they're set in the 1930s in England um, with a Chinese or a girl from Hong Kong and a British girl, and they like solve mysteries in their boarding school. Um, obviously, Encyclopedia Brown. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know of a lot of children's mysteries. And like YA, I don't think I can really think of that many. I can't. I mm, yeah, I can think of some like thrillery ones, and I can think of you know some other genre fiction that has a mystery element. But I can't think of too many, you know, just straight mysteries. I, I tend to look at the Edgar list for, because they have an Edgar category for YA novel. And Edgars are the um, awards for mysteries and thrillers. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I look at the Edgar winners for uh, for YA and I'm like, really? This is this is one? Um, Paper Towns by John Green won an Edgar. Um, yeah, I was like, really? This is what they consider a mystery? <laughs> yeah, I like that book a lot, but I just wouldn't categorize it as a mystery. Nova Rensuma's most recent book, The Walls Around Us, they was also nominated for an Edgar, and I was kind of like, really? <laughs> I mean, I love that book, and I would classify it more along the lines of like horror than uh-huh. mystery or thriller, but it, I, yeah. So I, I don't know that if it's that big in YA. Um, but yeah, most of my reading is more adult on that end. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. What are you reading lately? Anything? Yes, actually. Um, today I read most of Slasher Girls and Monster Boys, which is an anthology of YA horror stories edited by uh, April Genevieve Tulkult. I, I'm not going to be able to pronounce your last name, so I'm just going to put a link to it. Um, these are excellent. I really, it's actually a very solid anthology because sometimes short story anthologies can be hit and miss. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that is true. Um, but overall, these are pretty solid stories, and I'm really enjoying that. I also started. It's an adult science fiction novel called Sleeping Giants by Sylvan Newell. Um, I've kind of seen this hyped everywhere as, like, the next Martian. Okay. Um, but it's not... I guess insofar as I think it was self-published first, mm-hmm. um, before it was picked up. But they're otherwise, they're not at all alike. <laughs> um, the premise of Sleeping Giant is that this young girl falls... is biking one day, and she falls kind of through, like, a hole in the ground and stumbles, lands in a giant metal hand. Um, and then like years later, they're just discovering these giant metal body parts all over the world. And they're trying to piece the mystery of where these giant things came from, where the origin is, what the meaning is. So it's kind of like a science fiction-y thriller. So, um, yeah, I kept hearing a lot about this book. So I was just curious about it and I was like, yeah, I'll give it a, I'll give it a read. So, uh, yeah, that's what I'm reading so far about you. Nothing. Still on that rut, right? Still in a reading rut. Haven't even um, 
haven't even tried. It's funny, I got a library notification the other day for uh, my copy of Morning Sun finally arrived, which I'd requested from the library like two months ago, and eventually I I couldn't wait anymore, and I just bought all the ebooks. <laughs> <laughs> but that came through today. Um, You're like, well, I already read it. Yeah, hey. I'm like, yeah, I read it. And I think those books are responsible for my reading rut. Those are the last books that I read, and now I'm rereading them aloud with my husband, but that's... Um, that's different. I I enjoy rereading, and that's our own kind of a thing, but I don't count that as, like, obviously it's not my own personal reading time. It's unusual for me to not have my own book going. But uh, since I finished that series, I'm just... Nothing sounds good. It's not even like I've... I haven't even tried. I haven't even picked up books and then not finished them. I'm just like, no, I don't feel like reading. I think so. those books were also responsible for my reading, right? Yeah. So I guess I just got to wait it out. I'm trying to do, you know, other things. Read something funny, maybe. Some, like yeah. humorous essays. That sometimes works for me. I've been really tempted. I, when I think about reading, I, I've been thinking about some of my comfort rereads. And so I might um, indulge in one of those and see where that takes me. But, uh, but yeah, nothing yeah, I, I think I'm pretty much officially out of my reading rut. There's stuff I'm looking forward to in um, coming up this month. I mean, a ton of books got published in May or will be published in May. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a few in June as well that I'm looking forward to. So I think I'm out of it now. It did take me about a month, though. I think I got into my reading rut in, like, probably like March, March and April. And then now I'm, I'm out of it now, but it, it took me a while. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just going to roll with it. Yeah. I did reread books in that period, like books that I knew, like guaranteed mm-hmm. that. That's what I'm feeling like. I'm like, I want to go back to some of my old favorites and just read them. Yeah. Just do that. I mean, it's, it's your own reading times. So who cares mm-hmm. if you don't read a new book until you feel like reading a new book. So Yeah. What are you working on? Um, well, part of the reason I'm reading this anthology of horror short stories is because I'm studying on how to do it. <laughs> I'm attempting to write a short horror short story. Um, I just, it's so hard, you guys. It's, it's like trying to cram 10 pounds of stuff in like a half pound bag for me. I am naturally wordy. I, I tend to write long. Uh, you know, I don't really know how to do it. I don't. So basically just reading them to just try and figure out okay, so how <laughs> is this done? Like, how is it structured? I, I'm really bad. I mean, it's really weird because I actually wrote a lot of short stories in college mm-hmm. um, because I did, I took creative writing in college and often that's all you really have time to write and or workshop every week. Right. Yeah. You know, you don't have a time to write like a whole book and then present it to everybody and then have them read the whole book and critique your stuff. You can't do it that way. So most of the stuff that I wrote in college was short stories. And for some reason I had seemed to have no problem doing it then, but I can't mm-hmm. do it now. Um, so there's that. I am working on something else as well that I can't talk about yet. So, uh, but I'll leave that hanging. <laughs> Ooh. What about you? Um, I'm still kind of where I was at last week after, after our 
what do they call them? Come to Jesus talks <laughs> <laughs> about, about my, about my work in progress, uh, which has been helpful. And I'm, I remain, uh, inspired and hopeful, but I'm not actually doing any writing now. I'm trying to just do some journaling and, um, you know, I, I spent some time just kind of writing my main character's name over and over again on the page. (laughs) Um, you know, but just trying to ask myself questions and work some things out and, and figure out, um, what the heart of my story is. Because as we discussed last time, the problem with my work in progress was that there was no story. There was a plot kind of, not really, <laughs> but there was no story. And, you know, you and I have talked at length about the difference between those things and, mm-hmm. um, you know, having an emotional core and having momentum and all that stuff. So I'm in the process of trying to uncover some of that and discover what it is. Uh, and that's interesting. And it's, um, I haven't done that kind of exploratory writing or brainstorming in a really long time. And, I am feeling hopeful about it. That's good. I think, yeah. like I said last time, I think you are actually a plotter. I think you need to have a detailed map before you start. I know. For whatever reason, I don't want to be a plotter. <laughs> Why? I feel like life would be so much easier for me if I was. I know, but it seems so hard. <laughs> but I'm sure it's hard no matter what. You know, I'm sure this is one of those other side of the fence things. And it's very clear to me that you know, whether it will be hard, it it may be hard to be a plotter and to have to plot everything out first before I write, but it's impossible for me to do the other version because I've been trying to quote unquote, write this thing without knowing what I'm doing for far too long. And I have gotten exactly nowhere. So, um, it's funny, you know, I even went back and read my old novel, such as it was, um, when JJ and I first met, and this writing group, I was working on a adult literary novel called Pomegranate Seeds that was a, a very um, loose, modern, somewhat adaption of the Persephone myth, sort of, kind of, but not really. And I have, like, the most perfect first chapter because all I did was rewrite that first chapter over and over and over and over and over again. And so it's it's essentially perfection. And then everything else after it is garbage. Um, but I actually went back and reread it. Um, not because I want to work on it anymore, but because I just, I felt like... I was kind of doing the same things that I was doing at that time. And, and as I read it, I saw that that was true. I, I didn't know where that story was going. Like I knew where it was going and I knew the broad strokes of it or whatever. And I had this really immaculate first chapter, but everything else after that, I was just floundering because I didn't know how to make it happen. And so going back and reading that and thinking about my current work in progress, which is a completely different project, kind of helped me see, okay, yes, this is, you know, this is the way that my process does not work. And if I want to be productive in my writing, I need to fix my process. I remember so. those talks too, because we'd sit and we'd talk about your characters and your scenes uh, and your idea, and then you'd just be like, but I don't know what, where this goes. Yeah. We'd, and <laughs> we'd sit there, we'd try and figure it out, and you're just like, I just don't know where it goes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I I went to a bunch of readings in New York. We did one at Kettle of Fish together, mm-hmm. and then yeah. I did another one um, in Brooklyn. And uh, I actually had an agent come up to me and not offer representation after that reading, but she said that when I finished the manuscript, she'd be interested in looking at it, and I should send it to her. And I was like, she was like, yeah, how, how far along is it? Is it, you know, and I was like, well, I have this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> and and really nothing else. <laughs> I've been working on this one chapter for six years, so it's really good. <laughs> but, but I don't have anything else. So this is definitely, um, going back and taking a look at that has really solidified for me what you and I have been talking about recently, which is that m- uh, my process is a hot mess and I am a hot mess. <laughs> and that... Um, avoiding dealing with that is not going to help. You know, I just kind of want to shove all that aside and not think about it and just be like, but I'm just going to write a book anyway. But the problem is that I can't write a book until I sort that out. So that was good (laughs) to do. (laughs) The work has to come in somewhere. For some Mm -hmm. people, you had, it's all done before they write. And Mm -hmm. those are what I would generally call plotters. They figure all of this out before they start writing. And then for some of us, we have to figure it out as we do it. And that's me, um, you know. So the work does have to come in somewhere, you know. Yep. After, for me, and, and I think this is pretty true of most pantsers, is that most pantsers, the first draft is essentially one long outline. Mm-hmm. Because after the first draft, they have to sit down and then basically plot it out again they have to at least what i do is i reverse outline my book i take what's there and then i organize it um and some people on the other hand have all of that in their head and the act of organizing it prepares them to write the book and Mm -hmm. i think those are what who plotters are and i think that's what you need to do kelly is like you just you have it there you just have to figure it out you know organize it Mm -hmm. first and then kind of give yourself an action plan yeah, well, it's the same thing that I struggled with at um, NaNoWriMo this year when I tried and failed to hit that word count. But when I, if I go back and look at that, which I don't because <laughs> there's, there's nothing worth revisiting there. There's no perfect first chapter for that one. Um, but I, I just wrote and wrote and wrote, and I didn't hit my final word count, but however many thousands of words that I got, nothing happened. It was like I was describing, like, little knickknacks on shelves in a room, and I was just, like, I was just writing things to fill up words because I had no idea what was going on. And I kept thinking, if I keep writing, then something will happen, and my story will unfold as I write, but it didn't. That didn't happen for me. <laughs> I think there's this dangerous myth that writing comes from inspiration, which mm-hmm. part of it does, yes. But it's as much work as it is inspiration. In fact, I would say it's more work than it is inspiration. Um, you know, and I've met so many people who once they've heard that, oh, that, oh, you write? I have this idea for a book. And I was like, have you written it? And they're like, well, no, I've been thinking about it. And I was like, but you haven't done the work. And by the work is just sitting down and figuring out what your story is, regardless of how you do it, whether or not you plan it first or whether or not you just have to sit down and figure it out by writing a really terrible first draft the way I do it. Um, it's it's work is really what it is. The work comes out somewhere. Um, 
So some and, and everyone's process is different too. I think for some reason this idea that pantsers there's this I feel like there's a strange idea that pantsers are like divinely inspired and plotters are like commercial workhorses. Yeah. But that's not true at all. Like not at all. I don't think that's true. Yeah, I I think that that's part of my like resistance is that it's like if it feels less creative to me. Like I'm not being creative if I'm sitting there and making sure that all my puzzle pieces fit together. I don't know. I think that's a weird way to look at it because the act of creativity is just that you're creating regardless of whether or not you're Uh writing. Writing itself is just work. It is. It is. You're just sitting at your chair. And if you type the way, you know, I type, but like, or if you write by hand, you can do that too. It's just, you're sitting there. It's what they call button chair. Mm -hmm. That's the work. That's, you know, there's nothing glamorous or inspiring about sitting in front of your computer and just like (laughs) typing word after word after word. You just have to do it. Even if you don't feel like it. Um, well, there's that thing too, is that like some people are like, well, I don't feel like writing today. Well, then you have to examine what why you don't feel like writing. Is it just because I'm being lazy about it? Or is it because I'm blocked some other way? I'm blocked creatively. I don't know what's happening next and I can't figure it out. Like there's that kind of difference too, Uh but you're never going to be inspired every single time you sit down to write. I never was. And for me, the act of writing is me working through the story But for some other people, just sitting down and thinking about their story is the act of creativity. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking about it, organizing it, that's their act of creativity. So it's all the same. It's just, but yeah, there's that weird dichotomy that pantsers are, you know, they sit down and the words just come out and (laughs) they're conduit for the story that's flowing from their brain to their fingertips. That is not Mm -hmm. true. I'm a pantser, you guys. It's not glamorous. It's it's me sitting there, not having showered for five days in my pajamas. I've, like, I've seen your Instagrams of your Twizzlers yeah. and your <laughs> your sustenance that keeps you in the chair. And I'm just sitting there and I'm being like, well, I think this is supposed to happen, so I'm going to get to this point. And it's it's just it's not glamorous, and it's just work. It's work every single time I do it. Um, why do I do it? <laughs> question why do I torture myself this way (laughs) anyway so any off mini recommendations this week Mm, no nope haven't watched anything either yeah I haven't listened or watched or done anything particularly new I thought about going to see Civil War Mm. But then I was like, do I have to catch up on all the other Marvel movies? Because I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. I haven't seen any of them, so. Yeah, and I only want to go see it simply because everyone else is. That, like, herd mentality that everyone's like, yeah, I'm going to go see it. So I'm like, maybe I should. Right. But I don't really have an emotional investment in, in the MCU. So I'm kind of like, mm, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if, like. I'm trying to think of like if there's any summer blockbuster movies coming out that I was looking forward to. I don't even know what's coming down the pike. I don't either. I I yeah, we don't have cable, so I never see trailers and 
we never go to the movies because we would need to get a babysitter. And so <laughs> I just perpetually have no idea what's going on in, in any of that. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's like, I don't, yeah, we don't have cable. I mean, I, I like read entertainment blogs and things like that. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything in particular that looks interesting to me. I have such superhero fatigue, so I just don't care. The exception that I had made was Deadpool, which was highly enjoyable. Um, but yeah, like I know that the X-Men, there's like another X-Men movie coming out. Oh yeah. That I was kind of like, meh. Um, I know Batman and V Superman had come out and that had terrible reviews, which didn't surprise me, (laughs) um, considering how terrible Man of Steel was, so I was Mm -hmm. kind of like, nah. Um, so I just feel like there's so much superhero fatigue that I cannot think of a single superhero movie that I want to go see. Um, and I feel like that's all that's coming out. And I feel like yeah. maybe I've seen trailers or things, other movies, but I'm just like, I don't... Yeah, I got nothing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for this week. Next week, we will be continuing our series on genres by talking about romance. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, on Twitter or Instagram at bookishchick or my website at penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.